Incivility in our public discourse is limiting our ability to get things done as a nation and preventing us from expressing ourselves in workplaces and classrooms for fear of offending those with real or imagined historical grievances or even merely strongly held views. If you agree with that, then Adam G. McLeod's 2020 book, The Age of Selfies, Reasoning About Rights When the Stakes Are Personal, is the book for you. Alternatively, if you think such fears are overblown and just a nefarious argument advanced by a self-serving elite to justify a return to establishment rule, this is likewise the book for you. Why both audiences? Because the book is all about how to go about thinking and reasoning and the role morality plays in these processes. In his book, McLeod argues that due to the decline in moral education, young people he dubs selfies have entered academia and the workplace without moral cores and are so riven with narcissism and a sense of entitlement that they are unable to think of the common good and are quick to take umbrage at any sort of questioning of their own personal preferences. According to McLeod, a return to a larger place for for openly moral arguments would enrich American life and enhance governance. To McLeod, the misguided view of past decades that morality should play no part in policymaking and that strict neutrality should be observed in the public square has only resulted has only resulted in an acrimony-generating impoverishment of ideas and options. He suggests that the legal and philosophical concept of natural law can heal the body politic and help soften divisions, or at least clarify in a civilized way what is at stake. In short, he wants us to learn how to disagree well. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with Adam J. McLeod, author of the 2020 book, The Age of Selfies, Reasoning About Rights When the Stakes Are Personal. Thank you for joining us today, Adam. I'd like to start off by asking you to, to how you use the word selfie in your book. To me, and I imagine to other readers, the word selfie refers to a photographic self-portrait of a person, often a pose shot with a well-known personality such as Elizabeth Warren, that is usually taken with a smartphone and then posted online in Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. I realize that you use the word selfie in the book to refer to the slightly to a slightly amoral narcissistic person in your book, often a young adult college or law student. But I think listeners could use a little more help in grasping what you mean by selfie in the book. Is a selfie a person in your parlance? Is a selfie a person in your parlance, or is it more like a selfie mindset? That is, might you say of a student, that kid has come such a long way in his moral thinking. He used to be such a selfie. In your book, you write of such a person, whom you call Sammy Student. Please tell us about Sammy. You say of others of his age cohort, for example, by wrong and bad, they tend to mean what makes people feel bad. Yeah, thanks for having me, Hope. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so selfie, the term selfie is um, uh, is sort of an extended metaphor. Um, and so you can, you can start with that sort of image of someone who's taking a picture of themselves uh, in front of a background or with a celebrity or um, having just achieved something that uh, that they set out to accomplish. Um, and, and what they're essentially doing is uh, preparing to then project that image onto social media or share it um, by other means with people that they want to think of them in a particular way. They're, in other words, they're projecting an image to the world about um, their their sort of digital identity, as it were, their virtual identity, um, and so the metaphor that I that, that I develop in the book is this idea that a lot of what young people today that I encounter in the classroom um, and in professional settings 
um, are, are motivated by is that image that they project of themselves to the world. Um, and that that, that that image is largely constructed around uh, various uh, claims and ways of, of, of uh, reasoning in the public square that uh, tend to be actually quite moralistic without really having a very rigorously thought out moral content. Um, and so it's, it's really not a very substantive um, uh, moral uh, 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 claims or, or, or ideas, um, but really it's, it's sort of the image or the, the thin veneer, um, as it were, of, uh, of having a, a moral stance. Um, and this isn't just true of young people. I think it's a danger that increasingly faces all of us. And it's not just because of the technological temptations that we all face um, to, to present ourselves to the world through social media um, and other digital means. Um, but also, I think uh, it's increasingly a temptation um, to retreat behind this, this sort of public persona that we want other people to think of ourselves uh, and view, the, view us as uh, virtuous and morally minded without often doing the hard work of making sure that our views are, in fact, morally defensible. Um, so yeah, so the Sammy, so Sammy student and other characters that I've uh, made reference to in the book, um, a lot of them uh, have really sort of constructed this identity as a person who has sort certain moral characteristics or moral views, um, and they sort of pluck them almost at random from different sources, from a particular religious tradition or from um, you know the, a, a course they've taken in college or whatever. Uh, without really thinking critically through um, what are the what are the foundations of these views, are they even compatible with other views that um, that I project out into the world, um, or or um, and, and are these things that I really want to commit myself to long term? Well, that's very helpful. Yeah, we're going to discuss later the the the, the fact that there's sort of this feeling of entitlement without obligation, which is. Uh, kind of, and we'll get to that later on because I think that's really fast, and that's the kind of the core of your book. They don't have a core, <laughs> so um, and getting to the getting to the fact that this is affecting um, political discourse that they that they get upset so easily, and it makes everything sort of heightened. And that if you question anything that they don't even understand themselves, that everything gets very muddled. But um, given that your book is about how to disagree well which we mentioned in the introduction, I'd like to playfully suggest that I disagree slightly with this passage from the preface to your book. You say, some, you say I'm going to be respectful in every way. Everything has gone wrong. Something has gone, you write, something has gone wrong with our public discourse. On that, most people, on that much, most people agree. But I would ask, are things noticeably worse than they were at any other time in American history in terms of fairly nasty rhetoric? Doesn't civility only result in perpetual rule by elite? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's an interesting question, and I think it's it's possible that um, part of what's happened is we've always had moral disagreements, sometimes bitter moral disagreements, and this sort of uh, 20th century idea that there was a neutral public square where we could all come together and sort of check your morals at the door before you come in was really just an illusion. I mean, in fact, in some ways, a destructive illusion because it papered over real differences, radical differences, uh, moral differences, uh, differences about what it means to be a human being and what are the source of our rights and our, what are our obligations and, and, um, and so forth. Um, on the other hand, I do think there was something of a genuine consensus over the last several decades 
around something you might call political liberalism um, uh, and and this idea that there are certain shared values uh, certainly in the American context, but I think more broadly in the West generally. Um, and these would have been expressed in sort of the terms that we've become accustomed to thinking in, in, in you know, such as democracy, efficiency, liberty and equality, sort of basic commitments that we all share. Um, and we can all sort of agree on what those things mean. Um, and we can all sort of meet on those terms without having to get into questions about um, more fundamental beliefs about our obligations to our neighbor and to God, uh, to you know what it means to be a human being and what that means about our, um, our our moral status and so forth. And I think that's gone. Um, and I think so. The challenge is um, that the, that this idea of a neutral public square where we can all come together and check our morals at the door, I think, is gone. It's over. We see evidence of this all over the place. I mean, you hear. People on the left, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders, mm. using words such as right and wrong and good and bad in a way that is analogous to, say, uh, re- religious conservatives, the way that religious conservatives use, would have used those words a generation ago. Um, so that's the challenge. Now, I think it's also an opportunity, as I go on to say in the book. Uh, but I do think it's sort of a, a problem that's it's not entirely new in human history, but it's certainly new in recent history in the West and the United States. Well, you anticipated my question because I, I was going to ask about Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders because um, do you think that the fact that Sanders was calling everybody immoral was sort of a, was a, was a turnoff for people? And, and the same thing with, with Ocasio-Cortez, her star might be fading because she resorts to the fact of, of calling, if you're not for the Green New Deal, you're immoral. And if you're not for, say, universal child care, you're immoral. And, and I think, didn't, do you think that people got tired of, of Sanders finger wagging? And because basically it's, it's not, it's not a, a, a pleasant thing to be called immoral. And doesn't that, doesn't the fact if we reintroduce moral language into the political, into political discourse, we do raise, it could exacerbate existing divisions rather than, than heal. I think that's right. So there's a, there's a, a standing temptation to cheat in public discourse by elevating every question to the status of a moral question, and by moral in those um, in those contexts, uh, often what is meant is right and wrong. There's a right answer to this, and a, and a lot of wrong answers to this. And I've got the right answer. And so, if you don't agree with me, it's not just that you've gone wrong in your thinking about this how to solve this problem. It's that you're a bad person. Your your failing is a moral failing. Um, you're not really, I mean, that's, this is the old sort of flies to honey versus flies to vinegar problem. You know, you're not, you're not really uh, making much of an effort there to persuade the person who thinks they disagree with you. Um, nobody is going to be uh, persuaded by, um, uh, by a bunch of people who think that, um, you know, he's, he's a moral failure. Um, and so, so yeah, that's a, that's a standing temptation. On the other hand, I do think that there's a candor, increasingly there's a candor in our public discourse, which does hold out promise for us if we can relearn how to do it well, that in fact, there are moral principles at play in our economic institutions. Um, and that what Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez and others on the left are calling our attention to is that there are real moral principles uh, at, at stake 
and moral um, uh, uh, values to be vindicated in the way that we construct our economic institutions. Just as many people on the right would say uh, there are moral principles and moral values at stake in the way that we construct our legal and social institutions. Um, and the, 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 the more clearly we can understand those kinds of arguments, I think the better we can understand each other um, and, and, um, and maybe, maybe, hopefully, uh, begin to work towards some respectful disagreement and then perhaps even find some areas of compromise. Well, I'm, I'm a little, I'm, I'm sorry to be dense, but I'm a little confused because you were saying that, that the consensus that prevailed was, was the, the Rawlsian, and that's another question I'd like to ask that you don't actually mention John Rawls in the book, which is kind of surprising because the whole, the whole political liberalism, um, net, I mean, certain neutrality of the public square was his. And I, it just was, a, is he, is he such a, a Titanic figure that he just doesn't, that he's just a given, or you just didn't want to spend a huge lot of time refuting him. And, but uh, I wanted to ask about, about the whole, the, the aspect of if, okay, if you don't have a consensus anymore and you reintroduce moral language, I, I'm trying to see how that would work in practice. Yeah. Good. So on Rawls, um, uh, yeah, John Rawls is sort of one of these figures in, in intellectual history that's sort of like John Locke. Um, and that is um, that uh, so there are so many disagreements about the meaning of Rawls and about the practical import of Rawls um, and, and that you can often get bogged down in interpretations of Rawls or interpretations of Locke um, uh, or I mean the meaning of liberalism generally. That I guess I'm, what I'm trying to do is sort of bracket all that and set it aside and say whatever liberalism is, whoever, whatever John Rawls meant, um, there was this basic idea that he he would he gave us sort of the the most prominent academic articulation of that there is this neutral public square where moral ideas from which moral ideas can be excluded and we can all get get on with doing practical reasoning together. Um, I don't. I don't think that was ever the case. Um, I, I think it was a bit of an illusion because I do think moral, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this. The meaning of rights and liberty, I think, is ultimately grounded in moral ideas. Um, but but it, it functioned to the extent that we had more or less a consensus about two or three or, or half a dozen at most key concepts like democracy and self-rule or liberty or equality. And I think actually there was some consensus around those ideals. And I don't think that John Rawls um, uh, is responsible for that consensus. I think, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this as well. I think a lot of the consensus was built actually on a much older tradition that's grounded um, in thinking about natural law and natural justice and so forth. Um, so if we've lost that consensus, um, then what, I guess, is this your second part of your question? Uh, yeah, well, then we have to get back to the, the the more fundamental or prior grounds of that consensus. Where did this idea of inherent human dignity come from? Where did this idea that human beings are radically equal in their dignity and should be treated equally before the law? Where, what were the foundations of that idea? What were the what did everyone take for granted when they agreed to those ideas? Um, and I think we can recover some sense of um, uh, ability to to get on with doing our practical reasoning together in our civic discourse um, if we can get back to the more fundamental goods and values that are at stake 
uh, which which were really foundational to those those ideas around which he had a, a consensus throughout much of um, the last century of American history. Well, that w- that follows. I had that relates to what I was about to ask you about the the role of restoring the sort of restoring the role of moral education. At what what age would this start, and what would it look like in a public school, or or would it be in a public school? In terms of tech, yeah. So I don't think it necessarily. I don't. I don't think it's necessarily helpful to think immediately about public education. Um, so by civic education, I mean more generally all of the formation of mind, intellect, moral character that happens in a human being from a very very early age. I think it begins in the home. Ideally, it ought to begin in the home. And the primary responsibility for civic education actually begins with um, the private uh, education that happens in the home, which parents give to their children, partly by demonstration, showing them how to engage with other people um, in a reasoned and civil civil way, um, and then partly um, teaching them the basic uh, principles and, and moral commitments, which underlay our civic um, principles. Um, and then it goes into various educational institutions. And here, this is skipping ahead a bit, um, but here I, I would argue very strongly for a pluralistic understanding of civic education, um, which encompasses not just uh, state-run schools, but also private schools and homeschooling, religious assemblies, um, uh, civic and fraternal and and uh, and and other organizations that are. Um, uh, you know that that get people hopefully at a young age involved in things like volunteering, um, and uh, and and mentoring and so forth. Um, all of these institutions, um, businesses, I think, also have a role. All of these institutions have a role in uh, in educating. And guess what? They're doing it. They're already doing it. Um, a young person mm-hmm. who goes to work for a nonprofit or a for-profit business is getting an education in that enterprise. And so the question is, are we going to educate them well? Are we going to be attentive to the the moral formation that they are receiving? Um, or are we just going to leave it to happenstance? And that's, I argue, largely, and I'm not the only one, and this, is an orig- this part is not original to me. A lot of people have been saying for several decades now, hey, we've been leaving it to happenstance and the, and the results are not attractive. Um, we need to be doing this much more purposefully, um, thinking about moral formation um, as we're going about training um, our our young people for for the instrumental pursuits of their vacations and their and their professional um, careers. Well, one concern I have when you talk about corporations and, and let's say just general workplaces, say in a healthcare setting or uh, education generally, or just any 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 business setting at all, or any modern workplace, my concern about having moral language used is that that translates into corporate wokeness and also sort of this, this fuzzy mindfulness sort of semi yogi kind of thing that, that it just, they're, they're using moral language, but it's kind of a vapid empty and also sometimes a very forceful wokeness that, you know, sort of either, either it's, it's sort of this namby pamby sort of let's all be, you know, kumbaya kind of stuff or else it's very severe you will not say certain things in this setting that is that is hate speech and so forth so i just wonder do you worry a little bit about shouldn't shouldn't workplaces be neutral i mean i can see that the civic forum i mean political discourse can be 
heavily laden with with morality. But in a workplace, I, I would feel very comfortable with it. Yeah, I don't think workplaces are ever neutral. I think um, I think everywhere uh, that we interact with other people, we are um, engaged in moral activities. So I think I think if you uh, if, if I were to go to work for uh, well take the healthcare setting if I go to work in a in a professional health setting uh, health health uh, delivery setting um, there are going to be moral decisions I'm going to have to make moral decisions people I work with people I am accountable to people whom I supervise will be making moral decisions um, we're seeing this very vividly right now in the middle of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Um, a very, very, you know, these, these moral concerns are raised immediately to the surface about, um, well, on what basis do we ration if we have to ration care? Is rationing care morally the same as intentional killing as, um, as some, uh, uh pr- provocative public figures like, um, like, uh, Governor Cuomo have suggested. Um, uh, and these are, these are really important moral questions that cannot be avoided in the, in the healthcare context. And so I think that I think that the moral questions are always there. The moral formation is always going on. And what I'm suggesting is that we start doing it better because I share your concern about the, the sort of vapid, as you describe it, wokefulness or mindfulness. I mean, often it's both, right? It's let's all be kumbaya or else. Um, you you yeah, affirm, exactly. you affirm exactly. the identity uh, and, the, and the expressed um, pre- presentation of self of this other person or else. Um, and, and well, why, right? So what, what is, what is doing the moral work there? Um, is it in fact, uh, a, a morally justifiable thing to require everyone to affirm everyone else's projected identities? Yeah. You have to affirm it. You can't simply remain silent. You have to affirm it is the, is the, or that's lose right. your job. That's right. <laughs> so that, that's, that's one sort of, um, ugly aspect of the breakdown of neutrality, um, and, and I don't think we're getting neutrality back because I don't think that's going away. So the question is, how do we respond to that? And is there an alternative which can take into account the moral value, the real moral values at play, um, uh, in identity politics and wokefulness? There's a, there's a real moral value at stake there, right? That, that everyone is in fact equally worthy of being affirmed in their inherent dignity, but what's the best way to do that? And what is it about about their their status as as a as a person, as a person whom I'm going to have to interact with, whether I like it or not, um, uh, that that is entitled to my respect and affirmation? Is it simply the image that they project out into the world, or is there something more innate um, uh, and uh, and enduring? Well, that's. Yeah, I think we'll we'll get into the inflation of rights talk later on. I've got some questions about that. I'm trying not trying not to anticipate what I'm what I was going to ask, but I keep saying, "Oh, that's right, let's bring this up." Um, I'd like to ask about again getting back to the disagreeing, which you mentioned about affirming and disagree disagreeing, or I mean, there's a about affirming as well as agreeing to disagree, and the room for disagreeing is is ever ever fading into um, nullity, nullity, I guess. But um, you, you write, um, oh, I pronounced that right, nullity, nullity, I guess it would be. Um, you write, the book aims to restore good and healthy disagreement in our discourse. The objective is not to make us all agree, but to make us disagree well, which you emphasize disagreeing well. Could you point to some public figures who disagree well and what 
what was solved by their manifestation of that ability? I'd like to know what, where we can see this in action. And can you think, for example, can you think of a case where someone who is or was not usually known for disagreeing well surprised you by doing so in a particular instance? You would think, well, that person is not known for being a particularly placid personality, or or but 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 rose to the, rose to the occasion of being tolerant in a way you didn't expect. Yeah, great question. So the first, um, I would point to uh, two uh, scholars and public intellectuals uh, whom I think are known to you. Um, uh, Robert George of Princeton and Cornell West of Harvard. Um, and mm. they've, they've actually made something uh, of a cottage industry out of disagreeing well. Yeah. They travel all over the country disagreeing well. Um, you know, yeah. uh, uh, Professor George, of course, uh, is, a, is a social conservative. He's known as um, one of the most prominent, if not the most uh, prominent um, American uh, Roman Catholic public intellectual uh, today. Um, uh, Professor West is a self-described socialist who uh, was very prominent in uh, in the Occupy Wall Street movement and other um, social movements of the left. Um, and yet they engage with each other both at the level of ideas and in terms of their personal interactions in a way that's really a model of how to do this well, that neither is attributing to the other um, nefarious motivations, neither is uh, 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 sort of pr prematurely staking out the moral high ground and throwing stones downhill at the other. Um, they're both really taking seriously the, the actual uh, motivations and arguments of the other one and engaging with them um, in a way that really shows mutual respect. Um, the, the second one, yeah, so I would point to, there was a fascinating interview that um, CNN's Chris Cuomo did a few years back with um, then Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore. And it was right at the height of the debates about um, definition of marriage, which were sort of making their ways around, at that point, state Supreme Courts and, and United States Courts of Appeals. Now, in my judgment, neither of those guys is known particularly for his, um, how would we put it, uh, uh, for his uh, soft expressions, right? I mean, these guys, these guys are right. both guys who throw pointy elbows and they throw them hard. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're sort of bulls in China shop personalities. They have, both of them have very, very strongly held views. Um, and those views come out very, very clearly in their public interactions with other people. Um, and, and in this interview, um, they were, uh, their, their tone was actually quite, um, aggressive, certainly assertive and at times even aggressive, uh, their voices were raised at times they were yelling over each other. And yet if you can get past the tone, uh, if you look at what they were actually saying, the substance was actually extremely civil, respectful and productive. And what started off as a de debate uh, between them, it wasn't, it was never really an interview. It started off right off the bat as a debate. Uh, but what started off as a debate about how marriage should be defined in law very quickly turned to really profound and important questions about, for example, where do our rights come from? And Chief Justice, uh, uh, Chief Justice Moore was arguing, well, they come from they come from God, and the Declaration of Independence is some evidence of this, and the Northwest Territories Act. Um, and Chris Cuomo was saying, no, they come from positive law, from our, from us, from our political institutions. Um, uh, you know, and there and there were there were very very um, sophisticated arguments being made on both sides. They 
you know, debates about the status of the Declaration of Independence uh, in the organic laws of the United States. And it was very clear that each of them understood the position of the other. Each was responding to the position of the other. Um, and uh, it was it was really a very clarifying exchange as a result. So there, I would say, is a sort of a surprising example of of two guys disagreeing ultimately pretty well in spite of the um, the sort of drama that they were putting on for the cameras, uh, which I'm sure also gets good ratings on CNN, uh, uh, which might be part of their motivation as well. Um, I think another example of that, in fact, it was at the James Madison program that there was a session on the masterpiece bake shop, cake shop issue. And John, is it John Corvino? Yes. Corvino John, yes, John Corvino with, with an R. And, uh, or is it Corvino? Corvino, John Corvino. Yeah. Corvino. Uh, and Ryan Anderson. And I think they've actually written or co-authored a book together. That's right. I'm not sure. But those were, those were. Yeah, and I think that's a good example of extremely different views. Ryan Anderson is a very strong proponent of traditional marriage, and Corvino is very much a proponent of, of same-sex marriage. And but they they're they just are real models of civil, gentlemanly, really heart heartwarming <laughs> ability of two intellectuals to engage and and to to interact in in that in that respect. It's really scary. yeah, no doubt. No, no. Those guys, but, but, uh, those guys I, both have been doing it uh, well, along with some others. Um, who have been engaging in some of those conversations, um, people like Sharif Gurgis and Melissa Muscala, and on the other side, folks like Andrew Koppelman. Um, there are a few who are able to do it really well. Um, and uh, and I would encourage your listeners to go look them up on the internet and watch how it's done. It's It, it can be done. Um, but again, it, it requires one to engage seriously with the, the the moral principles and the underlying motivations of one's interlocutor. Yeah, thank you very much. I think that I like that I like that term disagreeing well because it's it sounds it's it sounds kind of counterintuitive. How do you disagree well? I mean usually if we disagree fiercely or ferociously, but but I guess you disagree there's a certain amount of skill in doing it with a, with a, with courtesy and civility. Yeah. Um uh, on the subject of, of of moral language and and this is a case where where you introduce a, a concept that that would would seem again counterintuitively to to make things more tense, but it doesn't in the way you formulate it. And you you write in your and you call chapter eight of your book the or you refer in the chapter eight of your book the S word, <laughs> and that is sin. And I'm going to ask you a long question about that because it's a it's really an interesting a fascinating take on it because I would I thought when I thought well I thought how can introducing the concept of sin. Um, make people more welcoming of ideas that if, if, you know, they can see the irreligious people or atheists saying, Oh man, I'm, I'm closing the book at this point, but they shouldn't because it's, it's really, it's really uh, moving actually. But you say, um, uh, I'd like, I'd like to basically discuss how you use the word sin and would you, would it, would, would, would you want it to be the word sin to be used in public policy discussion? And here's my long question. Would it be used in moral or would it be used solely in moral education in classroom settings? And would its use pass muster in a highly secularized society? I mean, again, I know you don't want to get into public schools, but still. And wouldn't a return to a minds but wouldn't a return to a mindset or belief system which the concept of sin is central only exacerbate political decisions? After all, it is bad enough to be called xenophobic, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, etc. Are we now to tar each other as sinners and as moral as, and immoral as well? Again, to, to non-religious weeder, the word sin conjures up hellfire preachers and intolerance. 
But you make the argument that a cognizance of of sinfulness would, in your words, soften our discourse and make us all aware that we are frail, fallen creatures, as Robert P. George likes to put it, and would enable us to approach each other with humility and grace, as you put it. Again, I'll emphasize humility and grace, as you say. You define sin very movingly in your book as follows. I'll try to read this clearly because I'll stumble over some of the words, and I don't want to because it's such a, a touching passage. Sin is the irre- irremediable destruction and unmaking of the created order, which is good. You also say that the word evil is not spoken much these days. Is that related to the selfies dislike of anything that makes anyone feel bad? In other words, sin makes people feel bad. So sin, please address. Yeah, great. So um, I begin that chapter, of course, with a reference to Lincoln's second inaugural address. Um, where he's trying to uh, bind up the very, very deep, very profound, uh, very understandable wounds between North and South at the end of the Second, uh, I'm sorry, the Civil War, and um, and the way he does it, I think, is really instructive. He begins by pleading with his fellow countrymen. So there's a sense already that. Um, we're, we are, we are, uh, we share something in common despite our really radical differences, radical differences. It must be noted about a grave moral question. Is it ever justifiable to treat another human being as property, um, is not just a question about efficiency or democracy. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a moral question. It's a question about the status, what it means to be a human um, and and what we owe each other as humans, um, and 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 he goes very quickly to this idea that there's an Almighty, that there's a God, and that what God has allowed to happen in the Civil War is um, redemptive, because there's a sense in which all of us are at least to some degree culpable in allowing this institution uh, of slavery. And so, you know, one of the most famous passages, I'll just briefly read part of it, um, because I think it is instructive for us to, to, to reflect on this. He says, the Almighty has its own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the, offenses, the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through its appointed time, he now wills to remove. And that he gives to both North and South this terrible war is the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must have be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And so this idea, whether or not you actually believe that there is a God, whether or not you believe with, say, Martin Luther King Jr., that the moral arc of the universe is long but ultimately bends toward justice, whether or not you believe in final judgment, there's something about this idea that uh, we all have a share in um, what has gone wrong. Made, it's certainly not an equal share. Lincoln goes on <laughs> to make clear that from the Northern perspective, 
um, it's really incomprehensible how the South could have tolerated this institution um, and, and supported it with its laws. Um, but, but we all have a share in this to some extent. And that does, I think, um, invite a sort of sense of, of humility and modesty about uh, our judgments that, um, that I think is, is really quite conducive to, to uh, working through these questions in a civil way. Um, I do think it's important, though, as I emphasize in the book, that we understand that sin is not, in, the, in this sort of classical sense, just a matter of pleasing God or, or, uh, or arbitrarily obeying certain dictates or rules or not disobeying them, um, but that this idea is really that there's a human good at stake um, in, say, the radical equality of human beings, which the institution of slavery and other uh, unjust, unrighteous institutions and acts um, really damage uh, and, and harm in, in very serious ways. And that good is what uh, motivates our desire to do what is right. And um, by acting contrary to the good, so, so this idea of sin really is an idea of destruction of what is good and admirable and desirable. Um, and if we have that understanding of what sin is, we can see that actually um, often many of us um, uh, in small ways or large um, are, are quite, quite guilty of doing what is not good or, or at least threatening it in certain ways. Um, and I think that does, uh, I hope, um, it's certainly been my experience, uh, you know, make us more amenable to being charitable toward others when they don't see their ways in which they're acting destructively or unjustly. Hmm. Uh, on, on, the, on the order of this kind of, this sort of leads to my next question in terms of how, how we are formed to become have that have that awareness of charity and or moral characters and i'd like to to get to that kind of the core well it is it basically is kind of the one of the cores of your book and that is the practical question and you write rather than arguing about controversy in the abstract which i was kind of doing about well what are we going to do here we can better focus on what is at stake when we ask and this i'm quoting i'll, I'll read it again because this is what you write Rather than arguing about our controversies in the abstract, we can better focus on what is at stake when we ask a very practical question. Call it, and you have, you've capitalized this, call it the practical question. What should I do? Is the practical question your own, your own formulation? And I continue. Also, how does the question, what should I do, which is your question, compare with the question that Yuval Levin, in his book, uh, put, put he, the book that he puts front and center. I mean, he puts his question front and center of his 2020 book, which is published the same year yours has been. Uh, a time, his book is a time to build from family and community to Congress and the campus. How recommitting to our institutions can revive the American dream. And his question that he formulates is kind of the central question, organizing principle of his book is not what shall I do, but what is my role here. And Levin argues that institutions should be the primary vehicle for restoring a sense of purpose and civility in American life. Whereas you emphasize, as I understand it, moral education, character formation, school, and in the individual heart, human heart and intellect, which I think I've learned from this interview that you're talking more about the individual human heart rather than what we do in public schools. Could you discuss how you too, meaning you and Yuval Levin, 
uh, differ in your respective diagnosis of the problem of civil discourse and in your proposed remedies? Yeah, great. So on the first, um, yeah, this particular formulation of what I call the practical question, capital P, capital Q, um, is mine. So don't blame anybody else. Um, But of course, I'm drawing on uh, an intellectual tradition that goes all the way back to Aristotle um, and the distinction between thinking in sort of abstract or theoretical or speculative terms about what is true, right? Is there a God? Is the sun at the center of the solar system or does the sun revolve around the earth? Those sorts of questions, as opposed to what is the right way for me to treat my children? Um, Should I just command them to do things or should I explain to them why I'm telling them, you know, not to walk around the edge of the fire pit or um, why they can't have cake for breakfast. Um, and so, so by focusing on the practical uh, payoff of these questions, um, we, we can, we can um, I think, get quite a lot further than when we leave things in abstract terms. And I think this is part of our problem, again, is often we're approaching these questions um, in, in institutions like Congress or uh, elite universities in very, very abstract theoretical terms, which um, actually make it more difficult to achieve genuine disagreement, because it's not at all clear that we're always focused on what, is, what, what are we actually disagreeing about. Whereas if we ask a very practical question, such as um, uh, in the abortion context, uh, should this woman who went to this abortion clinic for the purpose of Um, ending her pregnancy, be prosecuted for a crime. And um, this, of course, was a question that was that was raised during the presidential debates in 2016. And and um, pro-lifers, as many pro-lifers pointed out at the time, pro-lifers on the whole agree with people who are in favor of abortion rights on this question. No, we're not we're not calling for the criminalization or the criminal punishments against uh, against the woman. We're, We're we're interested in. Um, uh, holding accountable the the abortionist. Um, so when you focus on the practical the practical question, what is to be done in this case or with this circumstance or when I encounter this problem, um, often we find actually that we have a lot greater clarity, um, and sometimes we find we actually don't disagree uh, as much as as we think we might. Um, I, I confess I haven't read uh, Yuval Levin's new book. I did read um, a, a recent excerpt from it in National Review, and I've read a number of things he's written over the years um, uh, that are focused on this this primary role of, of institutions in American civic life. Um, I think there, in some ways, what we're saying is complementary. Uh, I think we both are calling for a return to something like um, the virtues or uh, something like um, the importance of of, uh, of moral formation in civic formation, um, I would say there are a couple of differences. One is I don't think we can really begin to think about um, institutions apart from um, their, the practical reasoning of the people who participate in them, which is to say that institutions are shaped by, and I don't think he would disagree with this, I think this is um, this is probably largely a point of emph- uh, uh, perspective or emphasis. Institutions are shaped by the people who um, who run them, the people who participate in them. And um, we see this very, very clearly uh, in educational institutions. The agenda of the faculty is going to shape um, the kind of university or school 
um, that 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 this one is going to become. Um, and so the way that we go about thinking about uh, our our disagreements, um, either in theoretical or practical terms, uh, either you know we're trying to achieve neutrality or we're trying to be more candid about our moral disagreements, um, is going to shape us. And as it shapes us, it's sort of almost uh, accidentally going to shape the institutions through which we act. Um, I'd say another difference, though, is, um, as I understand his argument, it's largely focused on uh, elite institutions, um, you know, to, yeah. and, and I think he actually says this, um, sort of national in scope, um, you know, elite universities and so forth. Uh, you know, I think actually, if he were to get out more into real America, where I've spent most of my life, um, I think he would find a lot of institutions that are practicing the very virtues that he wants to be, that he wants to see returned uh, to prominence in elite institutions. Uh, you know, I think we see this in, um, in a lot of classical uh, schools around the country. Um, you know, I, I look at my own community where I, my adopted community, I grew up in the state of Maine, but I live in Montgomery, Alabama, in the heart of the Deep South. And I see uh, here in the city of Montgomery um, a lot of nonprofit and charitable organizations um, that are uh, really focused on the problems that the city um, uh, is is confronting in terms of uh, you know uh, uh, de facto racial segregation and impoverishment and gun violence. Um, and if you look at the people who are investing in those institutions and and going into the communities that need uh, help, um, you see a lot of ideological diversity. You see Republicans and Democrats. You see whites and blacks and and other races and ethnicities. Um, there's a sense in which uh, the the more the, the the more you get to the practical problem that we're trying to deal, with, the closer you get to the practical problem you're trying to deal with, the more you find actually that those virtues are actually being lived out. And it's the elite institutions where things are sort of kept at this abstract level um, that uh, that seem to have a much harder time actually achieving genuine good faith uh, moral understanding. Um, and and I think and it was good. So anyway, you, you wanted to follow up on that. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say in his book he does he does talk quite a bit about families, but I think you're right. He does tend to emphasize um, think tanks and universities and. Sort of, sort of international. What I would consider from the, <laughs> for want of a better word, the deep state. You know, this. I mean, sort of the State Department kind of elite organization. But he does emphasize. He does talk about the family. But, but I think I think you're right that institutions, and particularly as a Westerner, I'm going to talk to him about it. I'm going to interview him a couple months, weeks from now. But he was talking about as a Westerner. I felt like a lot of this seems very East Coast central, and. You know, in terms of, of where the think tanks are, but he does, but he does try to get out and, and, and into the into the, the heartlands. Really. But um, in terms of ideas, you were talking about about core beliefs, and you mentioned liberty. I think I think you mentioned liberty earlier, and I was interested in this passage in your book because this kind of relates to what what are what what fundamental things that people believe in. And you were talking just now about what's happening in Alabama and your home city about how people are, what, what, what people think should be done. And as you say, what, what shall I do? And you write, whereas under the older idea of liberty, it was enough to simply leave other people alone under this new idea of liberty. Some people have obligations to provide opportunities to other people. And you were just speaking about that. And that's very heartening, but, but I I hate to keep saying, but, but 
does the social justice left even use the word liberty much at all any more than they use the word sin? I mean, they, I don't I don't see people like Sanders or or, or Ocasio Cortez using the word liberty. In fact, I think they would regard that as oh well, that's that's a sign that you're a, a, G, a GOP, you know, Trump uh, dinosaur, and nobody that that's that's an old value and that's a that's a, a an, a, an archaic patriarchal view of things. And they don't seem to, the word liberty doesn't seem to resonate with them or they don't use it. That's fair. Um, I, I think uh, terms you do hear from them are choice and freedom and, and autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and often those stand in for a sort of analogous idea. So choice and autonomy in particular, um, I would say that uh, those, those words tend to do on the left, the, the sort of work that liberty does amongst uh, classical liberals, libertarians, and folks on the right. Um, and again, I think there's both promise and peril here. So the, the peril is, should be pretty obvious, right? Our, our consensus about what it means to be committed to liberty is, is, seems to have broken down. Um, and that's, that's a problem. Uh, there's no, no doubt. Um, and you know, it, 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 it does seem that there is increasingly an authoritarian streak um, among certain factions on both the left and the right um, in American uh, uh, public discourse. Um, on the other hand, there, there's, there is an opportunity here as we're being more candid about uh, our understanding of what is liberty for, um, for us to achieve better understanding of, of our, our important moral commitments. So on the left, what moral, what, what, what autonomy is largely, or what f- choice or freedom is largely for, is the realization of personal autonomy. It's the autonomy to, um, to uh, sort of express my identity in the world, to be affirmed in um, my personal choices, um, certainly autonomy in matters of sexual ethics, um, uh, and and increasingly, this autonomy requires certain subsidies and assistance from um, centralized governments and central planners. Um, so I'm going to. It's not enough for me merely to have uh, to be at liberty to say use contraception or access abortion, um, but uh, but I need the government to pay for it, and that means I need uh, my fellow uh, citizens to pay their taxes um, and their insurance premiums to pay for it as well. Um, on the right. Uh, liberty uh, classically was understood to be a liberty to promote um, the common good, the good of the particular community of which I'm part. So I'm at liberty to provide for my children. I'm at liberty to pursue an education. Um, but there's also a danger here that liberty uh, become, become an end uh, unto itself, that what I'm really after is just liberty for liberty's sake. Um, and so both of these, I think, have a tendency, unfortunately, to sort of devolve into these very entrenched and mutually incompatible positions, but if we but if we if we get at the the more fundamental values that are at stake, autonomy um, and and uh, and excellence, um, then we can begin to have really a good faith disagreement about what liberty is for and should we value liberty and and why and and then that is going to play itself out in in our um, in our civic discourse about about civil liberties and civil rights. Well, speaking of civil rights, and I think one thing that you do in the book that's helpful to both progressives and conservatives is that you point out, as many as some natural natural law theorists do, and you were just speaking about uh, the civil rights movement, 
and the fact that you're, you're located in the South, you point out in a book that many of Martin Luther King's most famous statements during the civil rights struggle were anchored in natural law. And could you discuss that? Because many of our progressive listeners may not realize, well, we're going to discuss natural law in depth in a, in a bit, but I would just, would you connect the fact that what, what natural law meant to someone like King and how it can mean something important to people on the left? Yeah, so when King and, and other thinkers who are trained in the same tradition as King um, use a term like natural law, what they mean is that these moral principles are not just mine. This is not a matter of my own personal opinion or my own um, my own preferences. Uh, this isn't just a matter of what I happen to like. Uh, it is objectively true, King uh, is arguing in places like his letter from a Birmingham jail and in many of his public speeches, um, that, that human beings have an inherent dignity which, uh, which imposes on others an obligation never to treat them uh, inconsistent with their dignity. It never it is never just for me to um, uh, to, uh, to discriminate against another person because of their race or to enslave them, um, because that's inconsistent with who they are objectively. There are objective uh, moral facts that 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 we need to confront, and there are objective moral principles that we need to confront. There is such a thing as good and evil in the world, and uh, by calling something that is evil good, I don't make it so. Um, and so the, the basic idea behind natural law, which, and of course, King himself gives credit um, in his writings to, uh, to classical thinkers such as Augustine and Aquinas uh, for this idea. The basic idea is that there, there's, an, a, there's, a, there's an, a ground out there. Um, it's not a neutral ground in a Rawlsian sense, but it is an objective ground where we can both stand separate and apart from our own preferences and our own agendas. And we can both stand on this ground and, and begin to reflect on the fact that, gee, with the, the fact that we both think there are important moral, moral principles at stake here seems to suggest that we both seem, and that you should agree with my moral claims, right? Seems to suggest that we both think that there are objective right and wrong answers to these profound moral questions. That's a potential starting place. King thought so, of course, and, and it's a place uh, from which he started in much of his own public discourse in writing and, and in, his, uh, in his speeches, um, that there are certain uh, moral facts and moral principles um, uh, at stake in these important civic questions and political questions and legal questions um, that uh, even people who disagree with him about the ultimate conclusion say on the justice of racial segregation. They should agree with the principles, and then we can start there, and we can then uh, work our way forward. Well, speaking of sticking with the civil rights movement and King, I, I, one of the things that I found really fascinating in your book is that you 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 find commonalities that are that when unexpected commonalities. For example, you talk about what may appear to be primarily conservative concerns, such as private property, were rarely important to the civil rights movement. You, you make the point that it would have been exceedingly difficult for the civil rights movement to have made the gains it did without robust private property protections, because many of its key strategy sessions at a practical level and organizing took place in private homes. And it was the fact that private homes, even to uh, the white supremacists, in some ex to some extent were sacrosanct and that without private property pr protections, it would have been very difficult for 
the black activists to to function. Yeah, that's right. That Private Homes, the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which is just uh, just a, a couple of miles from where I sit. Um, uh, these, of course, are are um, protected by property law, and and it's not just the law; it's a it's a culture. Uh, you know, the, if you look at uh, a lot of the more egregious um, injustices perpetrated during the civil rights um, struggles, uh, it's clear that a number of the people who were most rabidly uh, segregationist didn't have a lot of concern or respect for uh, bodily autonomy, um, but. Uh, but the fact that there was a culture of protection of private property rights meant that there was a place where the civil rights organizers could go to re- to retreat together, to um, to uh, plan and to pray together and to take encouragement from each other, um, and that's really where the uh, you know the the sort of engine room of the of the civil rights movement um, was was in these uh, these private places protected by by this very very important civil right private property. Um, which is today viewed as um, uh, largely a cause of the right. Of course, I don't want to downplay the fact that there were attacks on on the homes and fire bombings and so forth. And but that was that was a that was only really only um, emphasizes that that what an important right it is because once it's violated, it's 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 horrific. So, um, well, speaking moving along to. A different, a different sort of morals. There was a true moral, a true moral leader like King, and then there are these wonderful, amusing caricatures of these kind of wannabe moralists in your book that just are sort of very charming and recognizable to me on all of them. Of they call them the four moralists, and one of my my favorite is we can't. I'm afraid we can't discuss all of them because they're they're just so charming that we could go on all day about them. But the one that I I particularly liked was you called her I with it. I is the first initial dentitarian, identitarian. And so could you discuss what she's like? And having grown up in a liberal Unitarian household, I can tell you that I immediately knew who she was. I could... I know this person. Yeah. So, so these these four caricatures in the book, of course, are designed to um, sort of check our reflexes when we encounter someone whose views uh, we find um, disagreeable, or maybe even in some cases quite repulsive. Um, are we really making an effort to understand their their underlying moral concerns, which are motivating their their sort of the claims that they're presenting to us, um, or are we just writing them off? Um, and so, you know, I think in, in the, the idea that there is a someone who happens to identify as a cisgendered heterosexual female, um, but really wants us to understand that we shouldn't um, just judge people based upon their uh, their chromosomes or their or their physical appearance. Um, a lot of people encounter this young person and they say, uh, ah, you're one of these um, sort of aspiring tyrants who wants to. Um, uh, you know, make us all bow to the the ideology of sexual orientation and gender identity. And it is the case, it is certainly the case that there are a number of academics, um, uh, prominent uh, politicians and cultural uh, leaders who, in fact, are quite authoritarian in their commitment to, um, uh, to identitarian um, politics. Um, but in my experience, a lot of the young people I encounter um, aren't that. It's just that's what they grew up in. They grew up in this um, with a certain set of assumptions. And what they really mean when they say, well, you should affirm someone's identity is, well, you should be kind to them. 
Well, that's a principle that I think we should all affirm, right? There's no reason to be unkind to someone gratuitously. Um, and, um, and so to understand the sort of, the, the, the real moral concern underlying uh, a lot of these expressions often is something that we ought to be, um, we ought to rush to affirm, um, even if we don't necessarily ultimately agree with the conclusions that, that they draw from them. Well, when you, when, when you discuss identitarianism, um, it brought up the, the a concept you also discuss in the book called dignitary harm and the ideas of, which relates to, you mentioned Marianne Glendon in her phrase, rights talk. And you use the phrase, the inflation of rights, and say, and you write, we are spending down the normative currency of rights in Western legal and political discourse. What does this look like in practice? And uh, what are examples of what you might call fundamental rights? You also ter- you also use the term natural rights. And those are not quite the same thing. I'm just thinking that with dignitary rights about the idea that we need to be kind, and that's that's every. I think that that is. I guess that the left assumes that the right is not kind, that they're just personally abusive, obnoxious, hate-filled people. But, but you talk about there's also this, this, this expansion of rights that gets to be a little, it does get to be a little bit almost a caricature of itself. Yeah, so, so historically and in our, our legal and jurisprudential tradition, the, the rights that are fundamental um, are rights not to be affirmatively harmed or put the other way around, um, that someone has a fundamental right means that I have an obligation not to intentionally harm them in some, uh, some profoundly important way, right? So the right not to be killed simply means that everyone else has a duty not to kill me or maim me. Um, the right uh, uh, not to be defamed means that everyone else has an obligation not to tell untruths which would reflect badly on my reputation. Um, and so in the, in the context of uh, non-discrimination norms, which is where a lot of these um, disagreements arise, uh, the, the fundamental right at stake there is a right not to be intentionally discriminated against on the basis of some morally arbitrary characteristics, such as my race or ethnicity or so forth. Um, and so again, these, these rights that are fundamental are really, uh, really what, they're, what the work that they're doing is imposing on someone else a duty not to treat me unjustly by harming me intentionally. Uh, that's, that, those can be stated in universal terms. Everyone has the right not to be killed intentionally. Everyone has the right not to be maimed or defamed intentionally. Everyone has the right not to be discriminated against on racial grounds. Um, the problem comes when we, when we uh, assert essentially uh, rights to be uh, accorded some Thing, some benefit, some um, some affirmation by someone else, and now I'm trying to impose on someone a duty, n- not just to refrain from harming me, but to affirmatively act and to do some act that they might actually find morally problematic. Um, and so, uh, if I were to run around insisting that, um, for example, everyone affirm um, my identity as, uh, you know, first lord of the admiralty. Um, you know, I think most people would say uh, that's, I mean, it's kind of a silly example, but just, just to, just to make it stark, I think most people would rightly say, I'm not going to affirm something that's, that's ridiculous, except maybe as a joke. Um, but, but that's, that's sort of the, the shift that's, that's happened. Um, and part of the problem there is a lot of these things that we now think of as fundamental rights. I give, uh, in the book example, um, 
the the right to uh, to to um, steal intellectual property on the internet, other people's intellectual property on the internet, which the uh, a tribunal in France declared to be a fundamental right um, in recent years. Um, that's trading on the the real force of truly fundamental rights, like the rights not to be um, tra- trafficked or enslaved or maimed or killed. And when we when we draw a moral equivalence between those two rights, the right to download whatever I want off the internet, and my right not to be trafficked or killed, um, suddenly the 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 normative force, the force that fundamental rights have in our civic discourse, uh, is 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 considerably weakened. Um, and since that really is the 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 currency of our civic discourse, um, it makes it very very hard for us to have meaningful. Um, uh, uh, disagreements about what our rights are. Well, getting uh, somewhat connected to Donna, the inflation of increasingly everything's a right. I mean, I want, you have this hilarious passage in your book about, I want carrot cake and carrot cake is a fundamental right. And if you don't give me carrot cake, in fact, you shouldn't even sell anything but carrot cake because carrot cake is so fundamentally important to me and so forth. But it's really quite funny, but or actually it wasn't even yours. We were, you were quoting a, an editorial, but it was it was very funny. Um, on a related note about the inflation of, of, the, of that matter of inflation of rights, you also, there's an inflation of language. And there seems to be, I guess, a comparable case of re- inflation of rhetoric when it comes to the penchant on the part of the left these days to label everything as hate speech. In fact, what is often fairly innocuous mainstream conservatism on such issues as traditional marriage and immigration and so on is, is hate speech. And it becomes in, empower, disempowering or paralyzing because you're thinking, well, I can't even... I can't even make a comment on on a, a fairly any public policy issue for fear that I will just be uh, render myself unemployable, which is kind of frightening. But you say, I mean, I I, I write here. I mean, the the progressives increasingly use the term far right, far right. They say everything's far right. I mean, NPR they'll just say you know some some Wyoming Republican is on the far right, you know, to describe every conservative group and position. You make the point, and you use the word defame a couple of minutes ago, and I'd like to, to follow up on that. You make the point that uh, accusations, you know, of the far right or, you know, hate speech and so forth, that you fall into the realm of defamation and bad faith. And on that score, you seem to put much greater emphasis on matter of defamation than other natural law theorists do. And I'd like to ask, is defamation even a standing concern of natural law thinking, or is that your your own personal take on it? Or is it, or is defamation indeed part, of, or is that, does that fall under the kind of general rubric of truth of natural law, that defamation is, is an untruth and therefore it's part of natural law, sort of a subset of natural law. Yeah. So I think the inflation of rhetoric um, is one of the incidents of um, this rise in moral discourse. Um, and it's, it's, it's when things sort of get out of hand, when we do it badly, that this happens. And by the way, it happens, it certainly happens on the left, um, far right, hate speech. It happens on the right as well. Um, people who disregard, you know, who sort of write off younger folks as snowflakes or just um, treat every idea they disagree with as a socialist idea. Um, there are, in fact, real socialists in the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to inflate um, every, uh, every idea that impinges upon my sort of, um, you know, pure sense of liberty as a socialist idea um, both is unfair to the idea that I'm disagreeing with and the person who's, who's making the claim. Um, and makes it harder to speak about true socialism um, in, a, in, a, in a candid way. So I, I think there's a temptation for all of us on both left and right. Uh, yeah, I focus on defamation in the book largely because I think that's 
one of the wrongs that we do to each other, or I would, I would say um, one of the uh, ways in which we infringe on fundamental rights that is most destructive to our civic discourse, that um, by attributing to someone else uh, the, a motivation that is nefarious or, or impure um, or illicit, I can simply disregard everything they have to say. And I've done two harms there. One is I've, I've harmed myself, actually. I've deprived myself of, of the insights um, and important uh, values and considerations and principles that, that they are trying to vindicate. And I've, 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 I've rendered myself unable to understand what it is that what the, they might have to teach me. Um, and then, but I've also harmed them. I, I am acting wrongly um, by attributing them to... So to go back to the four moralists, um, if I just assume that this, this young person who's insisting that I affirm um, gender identity, say, um, uh, ideology, uh, is, is motivated by a sort of... Um, you know, post-structuralist, post-modern, uh, uh, nihilistic worldview, um, I, I'm not really doing that person justice. She, she may not really think that uh, it's necessary for me to speak an untruth. Um, she may just mean uh, that I should not go out of my way to cause offense. And if that's all she means, um, then, you know, we, I think we can, we can probably reach agreement. But if I just write her off as a, as a snowflake, um, we're never going to get there. And, and then people, things become entrenched um, very quickly. It happens uh, frequently on the other side, of course, uh, particularly on social issues. Um, but but, uh, but you know, one, one area where it's particularly dangerous is on v- environmental issues. Um, that anyone who opposes, say, uh, reductions in carbon emissions uh, doesn't care about the environment or doesn't care about future generations. Uh, well, no. I mean, there are important goods at stake in freedom of trade and and having uh, institutions of, uh, of you know free market institutions which enable people to lift themselves out of poverty and to improve their um, their condition, their material condition um, uh, in in the world. And and this is um, you know certainly an important consideration uh, throughout much of the Eastern Hemisphere where where. Um, uh, you have nations like India and Indonesia and others that are trying to develop economically um, so that they can lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Um, and if we just set arbitrary limits. So in other words, there are important moral considerations, actually, um, on both sides. Uh, and it would be an injustice to ourselves and to our interlocutors if we were to just um, sort of stake out the moral high ground and write off the other person and just assume that they have sort of nefarious uh, uh, motivations and and um, uh, and nothing to nothing to teach us. Well, there's also a sort of pretentiousness in it that that when you when they when the when the opposition to the to Trump they called themselves the resistance as if they were Charles de Gaulle or people who actually were tortured by actual Nazis instead of people who lost an election. It was it just rendered themselves. I mean, it, it was sort of this this pompous play acting aspect of it instead of and, and sort of. That just just was so dismissive of people who actually suffered in actual fact, anti-fascist uh, fights. You know, um, uh, anyway. But at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today about we're talking today with Adam J. McLeod, author of *The Age of Selfies: Reasoning About Rights When the Stakes Are Personal*. And now I'd like to turn. We've been discussing. We've kind of been 
um, skirting around the edges of natural law a little bit, and I'd like to sort of get into the meat of it at this point. Um, it is the position, this is another long question, it is the position of natural law theorists, theorists that the natural law can be known by natural or unaided reason. That is, one can know it without the benefit of divine revelation, even if revelation can reinforce or deepen our understanding of it. If that's so, then it can be known, and I believe you and other natural law theorists would say that it is in fact known and regularly acted upon by people of every shade of belief, even those who do not believe in God or any sort of personal deity. So people who are not particularly religious can believe in natural law and act on it without even realizing it. And yet today, if we look at the intellectual landscape, we see that most natural law theorists, nearly all the most well-known influential natural law theorists, are Catholics. Some are cradle Catholics, many are converts to the Catholic faith. Is there an explanation for that? And while I'm at it, I note that you yourself as a Protestant are an exception. Yet in reading your work, it's clear that the contemporary thinkers who have most influenced your own ideas and that you refer to are Catholics, such as John Finnis, Germaine Griset, Joseph Boyle, Robert P. George, who we've mentioned. Do you suppose that's accidental or is there an explanation for it? And I just want to spell out Griset's name because it's G-R-I-S-E-Z for people who want to look him up. And can you address the fact that 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 so many of these thinkers are Catholic? Is there something in the in the Catholic faith, or is it just by coincidence, or or is it there? There's particularly good at at, at networking. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, uh, maybe they are better marketers. Um, uh, I, you know, I think so. On, on the first question, yes. Yeah. So obviously, there's a variety uh, of of thought in natural law theory, just as there is um, in any other academic pursuit. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say sort of the center or, or core idea of natural law theory is that natural law is a fact, that it is the case that people know what is good, that people know that knowledge is better than ignorance, that when you get in your car and buckle your seatbelt um, and look both ways uh, at the stop sign, you're demonstrating that you really do understand that your life has value. Um, and um, when you you know, uh, bring your paycheck home and, and use it to, uh, to feed your kids and pay the mortgage, you're demonstrating that you do, in fact, have natural obligations to your spouse and your children. Um, and so by our actions, we demonstrate that we do really know that there are important goods um, at stake. Uh, we, when someone acts wrongly, um, we demand an explanation. So, you know, I, I sometimes use the example when, when someone, uh, uh, goes to um, when someone saves another person's life, we don't demand of them an explanation why they did it. We know that the life that they saved has value in and of itself. Why do we know that? Well, we know that because it is evident that human life is valuable um, with or without its utility to us, that each human being um, is, is valuable in and of him or herself. Um, by contrast, when a nation goes to war, um, uh, we demand an explanation. We demand in the declaration of war a justification. And it better have somewhere in that justification that human lives are at stake. Um, and this shows that uh, we don't think acts of violence are uh, valuable in and of themselves. So we, we perceive that difference. Um, as to why the Roman Catholic Church has had so much success, it's been part of the Roman Catholic tradition in a way that's not been celebrated uh, nearly as much in other traditions in recent centuries. But um, I'm a member of the Anglican Communion. I would point out that um, many of the great articulations of, uh, of natural law in um, our legal tradition um, 
and, and our political f- philosophical tradition and the Anglo-American um, uh, tradition have come, of course, from, uh, from Anglicans, um, uh, notably people like Richard Hooker um, and Matthew Hale and William Blackstone. And then more recently, popularizing natural law in the 20th century um, was, of course, the great author C.S. Lewis, um, who, was, who was also a Protestant. Mm. So there are a few of us kicking about. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we like to hang out with the Catholics and we hope they don't mind hanging out with us. Um, but, uh, but we don't think it's a particularly Catholic thing, nor should it be right. I mean, if, if we are right, if Martin Luther King Jr. himself, not a Roman Catholic is right, that there are certain truths about human nature, moral facts and moral principles about how we should treat each other, that everybody knows, um, that are, that are in a, in a sense, self-evident. Um, then it shouldn't be an exclusively Catholic um, uh, project. It just so happens that the Roman Catholic Church um, in recent centuries has done a better job than other um, intellectual and faith traditions at preserving it. Well, good for you for waving the Protestant flag. We'll, we'll, we'll show those Catholics that we have a strong intellectual tradition as well. <laughs> Appreciate that. So, um, can you, when we mentioned the, the, these um, figures, Finnis and Griset, Boyle and Robert George, uh, they're sometimes called nat- new natural law theorists. And can you tell us a bit about the differences between their approach to natural law theory and the competing approaches of other contemporary natural law thinkers? And I'm going to ask you to help me on this one. J, J- meaning the initial J, Buczewski? J. yeah, at University of Texas. Yeah. Um, Thank you. And Hadley Arcus and Russell Hittinger. Okay. And I want to spell it, take a name to spell out the, that name, Buczewski. <laughs> B-U-D-Z-I-S-Z-E-W-S-K-I. And Arcus is spelled A-R-K-E-S. So if you just wouldn't mind discussing all of that that hand, that alphabet soup I just right. handed you. So. so there's, there's as I said, there's quite a variety amongst um, uh, natural law theorists in terms of uh, how they think um, moral principles uh, can be known and how they can be um, derived from from first principles, from the self-evident principles. And even amongst um, uh, the three you just named, um, Jay Butchasevsky and, and Hadley Arcus and Russell Hedinger, there are, there are some differences. Um, and all three of them are somewhat different from um, another sort of group that, uh, that sort of draws more heavily on the, on the thinking of, um, of Aristotle. Um, and who would say that we, what we need to do is focus on what it means to be a human being, and we can derive certain moral principles from uh, from what our insights into human nature. Um, and the group that's known as the new natural law theorists, um, and and those of us working in that tradition would say there's really not much new. It's really a new way of expressing truths that have always been in the tradition. Um, yeah, I guess John Finnis doesn't even he like doesn't. that term. That's right. right. He, he, insists. he insists on being, uh, he insists on, uh, not insists, but uh, prefers the phrase uh, new classical um, in, in the same yeah. way that Aquinas uh, was giving a new and, and clearer articulation to truths that were earlier expressed by Justinian and Cicero and Aristotle and others in the tradition. Uh, but the basic, the basic idea is that you don't have to have uh, some a grand theoretical understanding of what it means to be a human being worked out before you can know what is good to do. Um, and, and, and this, and nor do you have to be, have any particular religious commitments that everybody, whether or not they're a philosopher, whether or not they're a Christian, uh, whether or not they're Roman Catholic, 
um, can see that, uh, for example, it is good to have knowledge. Human life is good. It is good to be involved in friendship and rather to be alienated from people. Um, that we can perceive these things um, based upon our own experiences. And when we reflect upon uh, how universal our experiences uh, uh, can be, that I, I enjoy friendship. Um, and it's not just I who enjoy friendship. Other people seem to enjoy friendship too. So maybe that means that friendship is actually good for everybody. Um, and it, maybe that means it's better than um, defaming this person and destroying my friendship with them. Um, and that, that even if we have serious disagreements about things that we really think are important, that it's still important to maintain the friendship, um, that that's worth preserving. That's natural law. So anytime someone is engaging in that sort of very practical uh, 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 inquiry about what is it should that I do in my relationship with this person in such a way that I don't destroy this good thing that we have together, despite our radical differences, um, I'm doing natural law. I'm showing that I understand that there are important goods at stake in this relationship and that there are right and wrong ways then for me to interact with this person. The wrong ways would damage uh, or even possibly destroy the friendship. And the right ways are going to take seriously our moral disagreements, but nevertheless pursue our disagreement in such a way that we each are respecting each other and treating each other as moral equals. Um, and I don't have to have any grand Aristotelian. I never even have to read Aristotle, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, though it's advisable to do so, um, I never have to have read him. I never have to have read the Roman Catholic Catechism to understand that, 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 uh, that not defaming this person, not attributing to them motives they might not have um, is, is the right thing to do. Well, that relates a little bit. I, maybe I'm extrapolating too much, but about, about how I behave. And you, and you talk about the subject of free choice. And on that subject, again, to get back to some of these other philosophers, you talk about, you mentioned in the context of free choice, Robert George and Joseph Raz. And for listeners, that's Raz, or Raz, I guess would be Raz, R-A-Z, Z is in zebra, on the subject of free choice. Could you discuss their ideas on that subject and there no and any notable distinctions between the two on the subject of free choice? As you say in the book, free choice is really important. So I don't mind if you spend a little time Good, on that. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah would you absolutely. Please, so as, as, we, as we just touched on earlier uh, in our discussion here, um, freedom is uh, an important value that um, it seems that people on left and the right both agree on, at least in principle. Right. So people on the right um, tend to speak in terms of liberty. People on the left tend to speak in terms of personal autonomy or choice. Um, but at the very least, what they are agreeing on is that if you're going to coerce me, you better have a really good reason to do so. So there's a presumption that I should be free to act, to deliberate and to choose to do what I think is right to do, um, and that if you're going to um, if you're going to use coercive means to prevent me from uh, choosing and acting freely, um, then you better have a really good justification for it. Um, so that's a starting place. Now, from there, of course, things go in pretty radically different directions because the justifications that are that are offered um, uh, are, are 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 quite quite sharply different, right? So um, on, on, on the right, 
tend the justifications tend to have to do with things like economic freedom and civil liberties, um, freedom of conscience, and so forth. On the left, it tends to ha- have a lot more to do with sexual autonomy and bodily autonomy and so forth. Um, but there's there's a there's a there's a starting point um, which uh, which we share, and that is what however we characterize it, freedom or autonomy or liberty. Um, there's there's something there that we think is valuable. Okay, now things get complicated. So is that thing valuable in and, in and of itself? Is it good to simply be free? If I'm free from coercion, if no one's telling me what to do, um, is that by itself a desirable state of affairs? Or is it the case that it matters how I use my freedom? That if I'm using my freedom to steal other people's stuff um, and defame them and destroy their reputations um, and physically injure them, that that in fact has uh, that those acts actually are not worth pursuing, even if I'm I'm doing them freely. Um, in other words, what is freedom adding to the equation? And um, and here there's 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 a very very important uh, moral disagreement. Um, amongst those who think that freedom is valuable in and of itself, and those who are in the natural law tradition who would say, no, the point of freedom is so that we can choose amongst various good states of affairs. I'm going to choose, uh, I need freedom in order to choose, uh, say, to um, which sort of graduate program or profession I'm going to pursue. Um, I need freedom to be able to decide uh, which of my children is going to best benefit from, um, you know, music lessons, and which is going to best benefit from joining a soccer team? Um, that freedom is valuable not in and of itself, but because I'm able to use that freedom to uh, bring about new good states of affairs in the world, where my children are happier and healthier and more productive uh, uh, members of society. Um, so that, that's really uh, fundamentally where the divide, where the divide um, is. Um, and then you can see very quickly where this goes. Um, you know, people who think freedom is valuable in and of itself are very quickly going to be calling for things um, like uh, freedom to uh, perform uh, and receive abortions and, and other sexual-related uh, liberties um, that folks who are more of a natural law bent are going to say, well, hold on a minute. What important goods uh, and 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 uh, and human um, uh, pursuits are you endangering um, by pursuing freedom in that way? Well, um, I, I think you make a wonderful case in the book that natural law is not a fringe idea. And you and I just could you could you tell us one or two key modern tests? I mean, texts that you meant as opposed to uh, Aristotle, is there something in the 20th century or 21st century that, that you would recommend that listeners read about? Yeah, well, I mentioned earlier uh, C.S. Lewis, um, and he has a couple of, um, of great books. His, his most famous one, of course, is The Abolition of Man. It's a very short little 100-page paperback you can get up in your local bookstore on Amazon. Um, uh, if, if, if you can find a local bookstore right now, um, Uh, which is which is a a sort of a an an introductory um treatment of the idea of natural law that you don't have to be an expert to access um king's letter from a birmingham jail of course is the uh the classic um public statement 
of this idea of natural law. Um, there were a number of very important 20th century philosophers um, who are not very well known, um, uh, in particular, people like, um, well, Marion Glendon, you mentioned, a Harvard law professor, um, another philosopher by the name of Elizabeth Anscombe, who was at Oxford and Cambridge. Yes, I was going to ask you about her because uh, my question was, you write in the book very, very t- eloquently in your book about the need for a sense of gratitude acknowledging the contributions of those who came before. And I was going to ask you, would you discuss Anscombe and her influence on your thinking and her status in philosophy Yeah, today? so uh, Glendon and, and Anscombe are kind of interesting figures, both very important um, in the 20th century. Anscombe, of course, uh, a few decades before Glendon. Um, but mm-hmm. They're still, still, still going, going strong, strong and working right. in the State yeah. Department. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're, they're both defending this, this uh, sort of central tradition um, about virtue and the good, uh, but they're defending it from opposing threats. So Anscombe is standing against uh, a way of thinking about ethics and practical problems in the 20th century, uh, which she actually named. Uh, uh, she called it consequentialism. Uh, but it's a it's sort of a general umbrella term for theories like utilitarianism and some of the more radical forms of economic analysis which essentially boil down to the principle that the ends justify the means. What we're after is sort of a greatest aggregate good for the greatest number, and that justifies us in um, overlooking or even infringing the rights of individual people if that's what it takes to get to the greatest good for the greatest number. And Anscombe said, no, no, that's not justified. That can never be justified um, to think that way. Um, there's a really important difference. She, she, she did quite a lot of work in theories of intention um, and in moral reasoning um, and showed that, um, uh, that it's, it's really, really important to attend to both the means and the ends in our actions and make sure that they are um, justifiable. And then um, Professor Glendon, Ambassador Glendon, um, uh, is really pushing back on something from the other side, um, this idea that um, uh, fundamental rights can just be asserted. Um, that if I just assert that I have a right to X, you have a, an obligation to honor my assertion. Um, and, and she's trying mm-hmm. to temper that and say, well, hold on a second. You know, in her book, Rights Talk, um, and, and elsewhere, she's mm-hmm. written about this. Uh, well, hold on a second. You're doing two things. One is you're setting yourself individually up at the expense potentially of your communities. So it's sort of the opposite danger in that sense. And then also, what, why do you assert this right? We can have a conversation about the underlying um, principles and the underlying goods that are at stake. Um, it's not enough simply to say, I have a right to X. Um, let's have, a, let's have a, a deeper moral, in fact, conversation, or at least political conversation um, about, uh, about what, what it is that we're trying to achieve here. Um, and so both of them are, are really defending uh, this, this great tradition in the 20th century in the intellectual realm um, from sort of opposite ends. Well, one, one thing I think you do in that, in that tradition, I think continuing that is that you write very, very persuasively about the real dangers that the selfie lack of black, getting, getting, getting the fact that they don't have a, a clear moral foundation. It's basically, well, I, I, you, you can't say that because not only do I not like it, but it's making this other person feel bad. So they're sort of aggrandizing how other people feel and saying that you can't say that because you'll offend this person that I'm not even a, a member of that group, but I'm, I'm speaking for them. So they're sort of saying that you can't speak and that person isn't capable of speaking, but I will speak for 
you know, the 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 press minority of which I'm not actually sharing the oppression with. But you're right; it's not uncommon for conservatives to warn of the danger, and you you emphasize the danger of this to to society that identity politics poses to comedy and free speech in the United States or around the world. But you go on, you go on in even starker terms than that than I think even Glendon does. That contending that some young people now are so wrapped up in and she doesn't use the term selfie, but you're, you're, you're focusing on that particular group. So wrapped up in highly individual me-centered conceptions of right and wrong, that it is becoming clear that the selfie culture may not even ultimately be compatible with the rule of law and civic order or even reason discourse. And that's quite a startling statement and a scary statement. I think, I think it's true. Could you elaborate on that? The fact that, that, that they, that they're so, they're so concerned with, not giving offense that they won't allow offense, even the possibility of offense. Yeah, I do think there is a version of this which is very dangerous um, and is not, uh, uh, you know, not to be um, uh, uh, taken lightly. Um, And that version goes something like this. Um, Whatever preferences or experiences I project out into the world, uh, everyone else has an obligation to affirm them. And um, if this other person over here, as you eloquently put it, speaking for, speaking for this other person over here, um, whatever preferences and experiences they express, if they are part of this particular group that I identify as oppressed, you have an obligation to affirm them. Um, and this, once we get into this idea of group identity, that uh, I have an, an, an automatic status or a trump card by virtue of my belonging to a gr- to, to a particular group with which I identify, um, that in fact is incompatible with uh, reason discourse about our moral obligations. Because again, our moral obligations are about what is right and wrong for everyone to do. Um, what is you know everyone has an obligation not to maim and defame, um, and that's true whether we are you know white male or you know black female. Um, and it's by virtue of our being human that we have these universal obligations. There are other obligations, by the way, which uh, are not uh, moral in character, but are legal or political and are contingent upon, you know, the particular legal traditions or institutions that we that we inhabit. Um, but, but if we're focused on these universal moral claims, everyone has an obligation to X. Well, then it has to be that case that that's grounded in our human nature. And not in my race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or gender identity that I identify. Well, you mentioned um, Cornell West earlier, and I wanted to mention the fact that you and he, I think, have a, a common concern with the fact that both of you believe in the fact giving honor to the intellectual history on of everyone, and he, he and he's very effective. I mean, he's a walking encyclopedia of. of Every conceivable philosopher or writer, it seems that he just can just call up at will. But I think he would agree. I, of course, now I'm speaking <laughs> in a way that I just criticize. But but um, you write uh, you write um, a grasp why a grasp of history and the moral foundation is so important. And you write, and I think this is a really wonderful wonderful quote from your book. I think to refuse to study the past is precisely not to be liberated from prejudices and bigotries. It is instead to succumb to our own contemporary prejudices and bigotries and to remain enslaved in our doing to our appetites and instincts. And I think that's very eloquent about why it's why we need to study people like Enskim and why we why the why the selfies. I mean, I can understand why they feel 
why they feel something, but they need to have some reading and not, and, 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 and at some point, I mean, when I look back at how shallow I was at 21, I just shuddered to think what I was, how I was so cocksure of everything. And here I am at 56, and I'm still learning, but, but, um, um, just to, I, I we're getting, I, I know I'm picking up a lot of, a lot of your time, but, um, I want to make continuing on the question of the self, the selfies and the, the their, their kind of grandiose view. I mean, I, 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 again, I don't want to be, as you've ta- taught me to be charitable towards them, but I think that you do make a point that they have a, con- the selfie has a conception of himself as a heroic figure, but tends not to want to make any actual sacrifices. A selfie loves grand gestures opposing against whatever aspect of the existing order he's against at the time. And this can be, you know, in oil companies today and the gun lobby tomorrow and Trump yesterday and so forth. But he does not want to give up anything in return that is a selfie. Could you give an example of this sort of thing that they, that they don't actually want to? I mean, you had this rather interesting tale of this young man who want, he was Native American. He wanted to wear a, a feather at his commencement and it was against the rules. And he And he just felt like, I want to do this because I want to do this. And it wasn't really based on on anything other than I think this is the, this is the right thing to do, but not anything beyond that. A little yeah, the, the the tradition of civil disobedience, the natural law tradition of civil disobedience that Martin Luther King Jr. drew upon, insisted that there are certain injustices uh, which are so grievously unjust, so certain laws and actions that are so inherently incompatible with human dignity that we have an obligation not to go along with them. Sometimes even to disobey. An unjust law, but that if we do that, we also have an obligation to accept the consequences, the penalties for doing so. Um, and so, this is why you know Socrates drinks the hemlock. This is why Saint Paul is writing uh, about natural law in his letter um, to the Romans uh, before submitting to arrest um, by the Roman authorities. Um, this is why um, King himself is sitting in a jail in Birmingham. And so this tradition of accepting the consequences um, is really an heroic tradition, isn't it? This idea that uh, I, my, my moral obligation is so compelling that I, I will, I, I, I'm called upon to make really, really dramatic sacrifices of my liberty, sometimes even my life, in order to make sure that I do not do wrong. It's so important that I'm not complicit in moral wrongdoing and injustice. Um, that that I have to make these sacrifices. Um, what I see in uh, the a lot of the sentiments, which are sort of gestures toward that civil disobedience tradition today, is people who want to disobey the law, but they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to escape yeah. punishment. They want to not have to um, actually sacrifice anything. Um, and so that, you know, this calls it a couple of things into question. Do you really believe these things to be true if you're not willing to sacrifice for them? Um, and then secondly, aren't you then just calling for lawlessness? That's not what King is after. That's not what Socrates is after. That's not what um, St. Paul is after. Um, St. Paul's quite clear in his letter to the Roman Christians that they ought to obey and submit to the civil authorities um, out of respect for the law. Um, and in fact, uh, civil disobedience done correctly is a form of lawfulness. It is a submission to the authority of law, um, even as uh, one expresses the truth, the, the, the deeper truths that, um, that some laws and uh, some actions 
um, um, jeopardize. Um, and so the, the sort of selfie uh, culture that I'm criticizing here is one that, um, that seems to want to have it both ways. And I think this, this really um, uh, gives us reason to doubt uh, how seriously its moral claims um, uh, should be taken. Well, one concept on your book that I think that, that that kind of relates to the fact that the young people, everything is important to them. I mean, and the smallest thing is is just vital. I mean, they, they don't, the sense of proportion seems to be lacking that, that they, it's hard for them to, to get the, the fundamental the fundamentals again, but we refer to the, the term matters of indifference. And I wonder if you could talk about how what they might, what a young person might learn about, or anybody who reads the book could re- learn about what is a matter of indifference. It sounds as if, well, I don't care about that. That's not at all what it means. Right. Correct? So the last part of the book is my attempt to sort of lower the temperature and carve out some space for us. Once we've achieved reasonable disagreement, um, if we can't agree, then how are we going to live together? So there are certain fundamental rights that are truly fundamental that everyone has, which must be respected, as I've mentioned, you know, some of them, the, the, the right not to be killed or defamed or maimed, um, enslaved. Uh, beyond that, there's actually quite a lot of room for us to choose how to organize our institutions and our laws, our, our, our civic institutions, um, you know, our, our, uh, our uh, businesses and our uh, religious assemblies and our charitable activities. Um, as well as our um, political institutions. Um, and on these matters, uh, there's a great strain in the, um, the natural law tradition, which is often overlooked. Um, and it, it, it's expressed in different ways. The, the, the expression uh, that I use is drawn from, our, from natural law expressions in, in the Anglo-American legal tradition. Anglo-American jurists, um, such as William Blackstone and Matthew Hale and Joseph Story and others, who distinguish between matters of right and wrong, on which there are uniquely right and wrong answers, and most questions where which are matters of indifference. And that doesn't mean that we should be morally indifferent toward other people or indifferent toward the moral values at stake. It simply means that uh, from a perspective of natural justice, um, there, are, there are a number of different ways we could reasonably go here. Um, and so it is the case... I, I use the example of uh, institutions of higher learning. Um, it is the case that some colleges are going to be organized around, say, secular, um, more left-leaning principles of, of say, um, uh, you know, ideological toleration and so forth, and that others are going to be organized. No, on, yeah. that, on that point, I just want to say in your book that you use these, this interesting um, trope or conceit of authenticity college and virtue right. college. Yeah. You give examples of, of what 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 you what the student would what the moral values would be inculcated at each. Yeah, and I think that the idea of moral the, the idea of a matter of indifference is we should have room for both of these uh, ty- types of educational institutions um, in our laws and in our society. So you can imagine a, a sort of left liberal uh, college. Uh, I call it authenticity college, where the most important value is we affirm everybody in being authentic to themselves, true to themselves, right? To thine own self be true. That's our motto. Um, That college is going to look very different from a college which is organized around the classical virtues, virtues such as courage and temperance and prudence, um, where uh, there's there's going to be a much heavier emphasis placed on 
um, on discipline and on rules and on um, tradition. Uh, and so those colleges are going to look very different. But why, why must we choose? Why can't it be the case that we can allow Authenticity College and Virtue College to operate? And um, sure, their graduates are going to look different. Uh, it might be the case that one of these will turn out to be superior, uh, a superior education model to the other. But in the interim, um, are we really suffering that much harm by tolerating different approaches to, in this case, higher education? Um, I don't think we are. I think there's there's quite a lot of room to have uh, institutions that are committed to uh, more, say, egalitarian or um, uh, you know, left liberal values of, of personal authenticity, and then others that are committed to uh, more, quote unquote, conservative um, ideals such as religious adherence and virtue and um, tradition and so forth. Yeah, I was just going to say that it's kind of interesting that more and more there are sort of freestanding institutions within larger institutions. I know that you were a, a, a fellow at the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton, which is kind of which 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 oper- which gives students, I believe, an opportunity to to meet peers in a, in a way that that they can understand each other. That the conservatives and it's, it's sort of an oasis, I believe, within for for liberals within Princeton to meet conservatives and chat with them and get to know them. Is that is that correct? I've never visited there. Yeah, so it's it's a it's sort of an alternative voice on Princeton's campus, um, and very very committed to uh, open discussion and debate um, of of important um, political philosophical um, uh, questions, and and we see increasingly um, uh, in a number of colleges and university campuses around the country a return of of uh, more. Uh, classical or great books, sometimes they're called, um, approaches to education. And I think part of it is uh, what we see when we open up the great books in the classical tradition is people disagreeing well, right? I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the great dialogues um, of Plato and of Cicero um, and of Thomas More and others uh, are, are demonstrations of how to have really productive dialogue, even on important questions about which we disagree. Um, and that's really what I and others are calling for, is a return to an understanding of how to do these disagreements well in such a way that we learn and, um, and that we don't um, disrespect each other. Well, we're getting towards the end of the interview and speaking of, of academics, and could you tell us a little about Faulkner University, and and as Yuval Levin might put it, what is your role yeah. there? Well, uh, Faulkner is a um, is a university founded by the Churches of Christ. I am not a member of the Churches of Christ, um, but uh, but I've been here thirteen years. I teach in the law school here, um, although uh, I uh, occasionally wander across to the main campus and get to participate in um, uh, in activities uh, in the humanities program over there um, on the main campus. Uh, and uh, we're in Montgomery, Alabama. Our uh, approach here in the law school to education is very consistent with what I've been describing. We have a course in the first year, the very first semester, all of our first year students take called the Foundations of Law, where the students read in the great tradition. They read different perspectives on what uh, law is, where, why we have an obligation to obey, whether we have an obligation to obey law, where that obligation comes from, how do we think about law, the relationship between law and justice and law and equity, 
um, law and equality and so forth, uh, different conceptions of liberty, as you and I have been discussing. Um, and so the students are going to grapple with these really important questions by reading uh, uh, great works drawn from the tradition. Um, they're going to encounter you know, Socrates and Aristotle and Aquinas and King's letter from a Birmingham jail and the Declaration of Independence. And then they're also going to read cases and look at statutes and other materials which show them the practical payoff of these important questions. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's how we launched their legal education career. And then they very quickly get into the more concrete doctrinal topics, such as property and contracts and torts. And then eventually they um, begin to learn some of the practical skills of the practice of law. But it's all grounded in this sense that they're engaged in something uh, which is profoundly important. Um, and that they're stepping into traditions and uh, practices and ways of being in the world, which are very, very ancient um, and have been safeguarding important virtues and, and goods such as justice um, and redress of wrongs uh, for a long, long time. And they're inheriting something that's, that's very, very valuable. Well, that's, 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 I, I wish you were my teacher. <laughs> I've ta- well, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I'd like to ask to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Ah, right. Well, um, I'm, I love talking about this book, <laughs> and so I'm really grateful <laughs> that you have me on. So that's one thing I'm working I'm very, on. I'm, I'm delighted that you were able to join well, us. Thanks. I, I do a, a lot of scholarly work as well. Primarily, I do scholarly work. Um, about uh, private rights, um, particularly related to property and intellectual property, patents, uh, land, and so forth. Um, And then uh, I actually have a jurisprudence um, book that I've joined with two other uh, uh, older, more distinguished scholars um, that's going to be coming out in a few weeks um, that I've been working on as well. Well, Be be sure to let us know about that. That's wonderful. Very good. Yeah. Christine Martin on jurisprudence, and I will be joining that. So, um, so I'm looking forward to having that released. And then, uh, yeah, some scholarly projects as well. But, you know, I, I, I think these c- kinds of conversations obviously uh, are increasingly important and increasingly difficult. Um, and I'm really grateful that you had me on. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really pleased. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Adam J. McLeod, author of the book, The Age of Selfies, Reasoning About Rights When the Stakes Are Personal. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.